Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder and your guest host in this episode of the Optimizing Humor Performance Podcast. I would like to thank listeners for tuning in and say how grateful I am to all of the guest performance leaders who have contributed to the show over the past two plus years. That brings me to today's guest who I'm honored to be having a conversation with here at the Gotham Podcast Studio in Midtown Manhattan. Our guest for this episode was Gabe and Jemmy. Gabe is a second generation member of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department and is a 21 year veteran of the department. He presently serves as a captain and is assigned to Squad Company 7. Gabe has spent many years serving in Camden Special Operations Companies and is a member of New Jersey's Task Force 1 FEMA USAR team. He completed an undergraduate study in Public Safety Administration from Newman University and holds a master's degree in Emergency and Disaster Management from Georgetown University. Gabe also serves as a tactical leadership advisor for Leadership Under Fire. Gabe, I greatly appreciate your willingness to make the trek from Camden to Manhattan. You're certainly one of the most eclectic members of the LUF team, and I'm confident that our listeners will find your personal and professional journey both interesting and inspiring. I'd like to start the conversation by unpacking what I term the renegade season of your life. What were your grade school years like? Um, thanks for having me, Jason. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, my grade school years, um, I wasn't really a great student. I got by. I was largely interested in art, sports, um, baseball, ice hockey. The one thing I, I remember well about grade school is that I, I had to repeat third grade because of you know me going in early. I had to do third grade twice, and and I I only mentioned that because I think it was actually pivotal for for my. I guess my creative uh, life in that when I was held back that year, I wound up meeting a whole group of new friends, right? So, okay. yeah, like I know everybody that's in fourth grade where I should be, and I kind of feel some kind of way about that, but they're skateboarders in, in the new third grade. Ah, so, but, but not in the fourth grade. No, no. So that's so that's where like life-changing, right? Like that moment. Um, is this like at a period in American history where – I would I would say so. Skateboarding is becoming in I was, vogue? I was probably like – eight, nine years old, right? You're, you're like 1984, 85-ish. Sure. Right? So um, probably one of the biggest things about grade school that, that really, I mean, outside of like being a decent student or whatever, like I, I got through it. I went to a parochial school, you know, uniforms, nuns, the whole thing. And then uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't even talk about being like the kid who had to go to the speech cart, right? Like after, I guess, seventh or eighth grade or whatever. So I, I had to take a whole period of class and go and do that speech stuff you know i just never really applied myself and 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 i think maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more even with skateboarding like and how i applied myself and i just never really had all the the tools to apply myself in, so, in some regards so what what were you like during your high school years then high school is more the same primarily focused on skateboarding yeah yeah so so like coming coming towards the tail end of grade school like it was just a lot of skateboarding a lot of like i i don't really care to do this right so the seed was set you know i was like interested in punk rock music and hardcore and, and seeing live shows and, and 
guys with tattoos and, and like just like the whole the whole package, right? Like going to South Street in Philadelphia and seeing guys sleeping in, in the doorways and, and being like really drawn to that. Like I don't know if it was like the freedom of that, no rules. My soccer team, my coaches, baseball, Little League, all the coaching and all the like very straightforward, like be here on time, be here. Like I just kind of, you know, rebelled against that kind of stuff, you know, and uh, coming out of grade school. Why, why do you think when you say I, I just rebelled against that kind of stuff, what, what do you think it, it was? Do you think it was your, your personality? It was your environment? Probably personality more than environment, but the environment was definitely like I was a typical latchkey kid, you know, like my father was a fireman, obviously, and, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But uh, there was there was like nobody watching me, you know what I mean? So coming home from school, even at a young age, it, it was like no big deal for me to just skateboard from my house to a, the pack of speed line at a young age, you know, 11 or 12 years old on my own. And this is, you know, miles from my house, man, where I grew up skate all the way to the speed line station even in the winter ice cold it's it's 4 30 by the time i get there it's almost dark by the time i get into philadelphia skate for 20 minutes at love park and then like you're done right so you're you're like a 13 14 year old kid mm. making the trek into philly to skate and it's not like you're going into philly to visit the art museum no no so it was, what, it, it was all know, skateboarding i mean don't get me wrong i was really interested in the art but like nobody was there to be like hey let's go to the art museum like uh, the, I, I did so when have, you make the trek into Philly, what kind of individuals or groups are you are you hanging out with, keeping company with? Uh, just skateboarders, basically. A lot of creative types, all artists. The awesome thing about that was like it was so removed from like my high school is full of like a very, it was a, another parochial school at that time. Like skateboarding was completely unaccepted. You, you know, like you would think like skateboarding is not a crime. Like that was very big back then. It was a uh, you know, football, jocks, that kind of stuff. And, and like we were certainly frowned upon or, or, or beaten on. Like, um, like in those days, it's fair to say that skateboarding was not viewed as being a uh, legitimate legitimate sport. No, like not this pre-X, pre-X games, yeah, pre-Red totally. Bull arena. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was no money in it. So even now, like I just watched something on YouTube. A friend of mine, he uh, he made it big. He was like one of the handful of guys out of the crew that that like really went on to do large, large things and 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 have a decent uh, living off of it. But at this time, there wasn't even the possibility, right, or the potential that somebody would end up as a professional. So, so in the high school years or towards the end of high school, yes, that was starting to happen. Um, some of my friends were definitely turning professional. There was a skate shop that had opened up in in the city. And, uh, you, you know, they were sponsoring my friends and, and guys were starting to get products. You, you know, you got to understand on the East Coast, this is a lot different. All these manufacturers and all the corporate side of skateboarding was basically out in the West Coast. So so for us to get noticed on the East Coast or, or for my friends, I should say, um, that was like a very deliberate thing, like on their end. Like they wanted to bring notice to the East Coast and, and they were really good at what they were doing and the cool thing was like they were from all walks of life you know like there were kids taking the trainer from jersey there was a lot of mostly local kids from philadelphia all parts of the city you know bad parts good parts um even then the suburbs of pennsylvania coming down into the city and skating we all just kind of like meshed in this one little area love park you know it's it's in skateboarding if you were to look it up it's it's fairly famous well known okay so so during this Say your, your high school years. What what were your ambitions? There was no no plan. There was no uh, I I want to be this or that. Like I, I I liked art. I was drawing a lot. I I grew up making pictures and drawing. And I thought maybe I'd be an architect or something like that. I really liked geometry. I I hated math. 
but geometry for some reason because there were shapes involved. Like I, I just, you know, it was all about drawing and making things, whatever that might have been with like mixed media, pencils. So I thought maybe I could be an architect or maybe I could do some kind of design. This is obviously well before like website design and, and graphic design was prolific. So yeah, I, I just wanted to skateboard. Like there was no real plan. There was no, I'm going to be somebody when I grow up. Like my, my intention was to just have fun and skateboard and maybe turn pro with it. All right. So you graduate from high school and then what? So this is 1994. I was skateboarding a lot. You know, my home life wasn't great. My, my father certainly didn't like skateboarding at all. He was on the job. And, uh, he didn't like it because it was counterculture. He, yeah, he didn't I, like it because I, I don't. I don't think he did. He because he was great about it. You know, like he took me to demos and stuff, and put all my friends and stuff in his van, and like we drove to go see like, you know, professional skateboarders do their demos and stuff. So he was good about it. But I, I don't think he liked the counterculture aspect of it and the whole like zero discipline, do whatever we want, the long hair, the dyed hair, the large baggy pants, and all that. You know. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, I I know very little about skating mm -hmm. but it seems like it's uh, almost has a neutralizing effect on the catholic school education that your parents had, Absolutely. had invested money in right so the funny part is i actually went to my parents when i was i think uh in two or three months into my junior year at the parochial school and i just had had enough you know i had hair down to my shoulders the parochial school clearly doesn't like that <laughs> you, you know so they started kind of like singling me out and and at first, I wasn't really cognizant of it, but then it was like, whoa, like you're you're picking on my the threads on my pants and the seams, and I'm against this and that, the rules. And so I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, like, let me go to a public school. So neither one of my parents, and they were divorced, long divorced by then. So they, they were like, no, nah, like, you're, you're not doing that. You're staying here. We want you to do it. You know, we worked hard to afford that. And I was like, all right, well, I'm, I'll just get myself out of it then if you're not going to allow me to do it. So, you know. The following week, I had like 30 detentions in a day or two and wow. a prompt call to the principal's office, Father Rock. He brought me in and he was like, hey, Jamie, like, what's your problem? You know, like, what's going on here? You know, and I was like, well, I told him the story. I was like, I don't, I don't want to go to school here anymore. Um, you know, and my parents won't let me leave. And he was like, all right, well, you're out. What else? You know, and, and we just kind of, that so was it. Like, he, he so just did me the favor. Probably safe to say you're, you were no stranger to conflict during these uh Mm -mm. Early years. So you graduate, like the idea of architecture, like art, want to continue to skate. What do you do in the years following your high school graduation? So we even towards the end of high school, I, I was selling a lot of drugs, mostly marijuana, but definitely some other, you know, more dangerous drugs, I guess. And, and that was enabling me to do things. So I, I kind of just was hopping around from couch to couch, not really having any kind of direction other than like, I just wanted to skateboard. You know, I had just giving up everything, you know, else. It was just skateboarding and that was it. Me and my friends just wanted to go skateboarding and, and it was just freedom, man. You know, like it was total artistic expression. I think it was 1987 or something I saw, or maybe even before that, 86, I saw Psycho Skate with Mark Gonzalez in it and I was just like, whoa, like this is it, you know, art and skateboarding mixing and, and this is perfect, you know, punk rock music, hardcore music hardcore straight edge and, and kind of did that for, for a few years. And uh, I think my father kind of realized like this kid's going nowhere, you know, like, hey, maybe you should take the test for the fire department. What did you think about that? People say all the time, like, oh, you, you know, you're following a job, you're second generation. And I'm like, M my father and I, like, we didn't get along with the skateboarding thing. So like, I just, I didn't really think much about him as a firefighter. 
I didn't really understand how the world worked. I didn't like know what the city of Canton was like or what he was doing, you know, on his 10s and 14s. I, I had no clue, you know, and he largely protected us from that. You know, he would come around, he would be in his blue shirt, you know, like we'd have a lot of fun and he'd go. And even as a young kid, like they'd bring me to the firehouse, they'd put me in the front seat. Like I've got pictures, you know, like in the front seat of the fire truck. And I'm just like, you can see it on my face. I'm zoned out. Like I just, it's not like other boys were like, oh, I just dreamed of this. You know, I, I was there and I was just kind of like not impressed. You know, it wasn't anything I, or maybe I was impressed by it. I just, I wanted other things more, you know, yeah. I, I thought they were awesome guys. Like every time I was there, they were all fun dudes. We, we had a lot of fun and talked and, and they treated me great, but I just never, it never dawned on me like, Hey, you could do this for a living, you know? Sure. Well, it's, it's interesting because in many ways we kind of end up in the same place in life, right? Same profession. We're both professional fire officers. I think it's fair to say we both love what we do. Absolutely. You know, we're both also sons of a fireman. And while I took a, a rather traditional path to get here, um, and then I went from grade school to the military to the fire department and, you know, knew at a young age that this is exactly what I wanted to, to do. You, however, arrived here via a rather less conventional path. My relationship with my father, uh, I don't ever remember a rocky day, let alone a rocky season. And from the earliest age, I, I looked at him, you know, and wanted to be just like him and knew that he was fulfilled professionally and, and at home. And I... You know, I, I kind of just very much aspired to to live a very similar life. It's, it's interesting because you, you know, my sense is that you actually, uh, in, in some ways, were like rebelling against Absolutely. what it was your parents, <laughs> uh, th their aspirations for you. Um, so your father encourages you to take this test. You take it just out of curiosity. You take it out of necessity. You take it. So he was, he was, and I'll say this to this day, like, 99% of the stuff he's told me has come to fruition, you know, like he, he's just been like very, very pragmatic, you know, like I understand what you're doing on the skateboard and a lot of your friends are going to be professional skateboarders and, and like maybe you're able to do that too and that's amazing. But, you know, like we said with the climate of skateboarding, it wasn't like, you know, there was no pension involved, there was no health care involved, you know, like so, so he's looking at it from from the macro you know and, and yeah. i'm down here in the weeds of skateboarding like what are you talking about like i'm gonna do this so um yeah he uh he just gave me like a different perspective on it and, and no matter how rocky our relationship was back then he gave me a perspective that i i felt like this is my father you know and and, and we do love each other obviously so we're like I'll, I'll see what this is about and i'll go through the motions and give this a shot and see what happens, you know. You take the test in 97, and then what happens? So I, I take the test in 97. After high school, I basically moved into his house in Camden and, and and then just started couch surfing. You know, I was all over the place, just chasing skateboarding. And and then... Just locally? Mostly. East Philadelphia. And, and I would go to Boston, or I would stay in New York here and there, or, or D.C. even. Like, you know, the skateboarding was like this huge family, you know. Like, we would network with one another You'd go to D.C. for the day and skateboard and meet a couple of guys and get closer with them and they'd invite you down and then you'd have a place to stay and, you know, and then you tell them, hey, you can come with, stay with me when you're up in Philly and, and then like that happens, you know. So, and, so you had a tribe of, absolutely, a tribe of sorts. Absolutely. A tribe of creative types and skateboarders and, and, you know, everybody's just interested in the same stuff and it's like, you know, all kinds of walks of life, just r really rich in um, lots of different perspectives and lots of different kids kids that came up different ways. It, it was just really well-rounded. Everybody was represented, right? So, I mean, that's what I'm doing. And then the test hits. I test for police, fire, and corrections. 
basically like all at the same time. And you go through the motions on that. And then um, the fire department basically said, I, I didn't have enough proof of residency to, to become a fireman. Um, but the, fire, the police department hired me and the corrections said they'd give me a job too. So, and, and you know me, like, I don't, I don't want those two jobs. They, like, that was just kind of like a box to check, you know, like, what are you here to apply for? Like, I'll just check them all. Like, I, I wanted to be a fireman. At that point, you knew that you were genuinely interested in becoming a fireman. No, not not quite. Following in my father's footsteps, like that wasn't that wasn't like on my radar at all. Like this was just kind of an experiment, almost, you know. And I remember even talking to some of the guys at my job later. They're like, "Yeah, we we watch you come to the practice sessions and stuff." And we were like, "Man, like this kid's like an athlete, you know." But like he just didn't really seem interested in going to the, you know, like. While you're while you're going through the obstacle course and oh the practice stuff. sessions yeah, for the, the practice sessions for the physical, physical. aspect yeah okay right and and thank God for skateboarding because I was you know I was in really good shape for for that so once they told me that there was going to be a process with that um, me and a handful of other gentlemen that were denied um, hire we wound up having a, a class action lawsuit and I just remember my father basically saying like hey like this is going to be a minute you know like this there's not going to be a quick fix here. Right. So now what? I mean, I'm moving furniture. I'm working with a bunch of friends in the city of Philadelphia. We're moving furniture, just kind of doing my thing, making art, skateboarding. And then the opportunity comes up. We take a road trip to San Francisco. Um, and this is obviously where the mecca of skateboarding is. You know, we're trying to make that happen in, in Philadelphia. But we all kind of one time or another basically went out there to, to, you know, try it out. So I go out there. I really like it. A friend of mine. Uh, my friend Matt and I decided we were going to go back and stay there, you know, because I have nothing but time at this point now. Like this thing, like the only other major thing that I have going for me is is on hold. So go out to San Francisco and just skateboard for a couple of years, right? And then let the legal process work itself out. I'd come and go here and there, moving furniture trucks, driving across the country, up and down the coast. I mean, I've crisscrossed the country a dozen or so times, maybe more. Uh, and then going up and down each coast a handful of times, so, moving furniture. So during this season of life, you largely just worked just, just to support and enable your, mm -hmm. your yeah. skateboarding. And, and, and I even took a job at UPS for, for a while just for the benefits, you know, um, unloading trucks and working on the sword aisle. I did that for a good, I don't know, year and a half, I guess, you know, as, as, as a teenager. W once everything happened with the testing process for the, the fire department, I, I just – I, I was like, you know what, Let, I'm going to go after the skateboarding thing. And then it, it kind of became a problem because now I'm in San Francisco and I'm skating with professionals daily and pushing myself. And all I can hear in the back of my head is my father is like, man, like if you break your leg or, or, or break your arm or, or dislocate your hip and, and they call you for this job and you're not ready to come like at the drop of a dime and come and take it or start academy, like they're going to skip right over you, you know? Right. So I got him in the back of my head all the time. So again, like realizing potential, like. So I deliberately kind of dialed it back and just never really went all in on it. You know what I mean? And again, he, he was right about a lot of stuff. And, and I was like, this is the only viable option. So I, I got I to like, I got to do this. So, so I did what he said. And, and I, I just kind of like floated there at, at this one level. You know, like I never just upped the ante and I never really tried to go all in on it. And then the next thing you know, 1999 rolls around and, and it's happening. We, we made progress the court case. Long, long story short, we make a, a settlement and the hiring starts. It's it's like starting to creep into October, I guess, the, the end of the year, 1999, and it's like come back for Fire Academy. So Fire Academy for us at the time was, it was probably short by even standards back then, maybe 
three months tops, not even 10 weeks. And then uh, I come out of that as a probie and I, I get assigned, you know, my father doesn't have a ton of drag, but he, he's got enough. So there's a guy that's going to be moving from, from the line into a staff position at Engine 7. Okay. And uh, he was like, this is one of our busier houses. They go to fires. Like, do you want me to try to get you sent to that house? You know, and uh, I was telling Jim McNamara this story a little bit ago. It's like, it was the punishment house back then. Like, it was busy and they went to fire. So, like, if you were messing up in other houses or you were, you were like a troublemaker or something like that, that's they transferred you to sevens, right? Because they wanted you to run all night and all day and, and do it. So, uh, I was like, yeah, like, I'll... That sounds right. Put me there. Put me with those guys. Come to find out that the guy I first started working for, my captain, Mike McCarthy, his father, Patty, was my captain's father for a long time when they worked together in the rescue, even when it was way back to just a two-man company in the city. So uh, we wound up going up there, I think, maybe a couple of nights before I was actually scheduled to work my first shift, and we had a big dinner, and, and I got to meet the guys I was going to be working with. and, and uh it was just like a very surreal thing to walk in there for the first time and the whole place smelled like a fire factory and it was like whoa like this is real like this is where you're going to be and opens up the nozzle seat door on the rig and this is where you're going to be sitting for a while and it was just kind of a very surreal experience i mean it sounds like you were excited about the opportunity. hell yeah i was excited yeah. about it I, I was like this is like the first legitimate thing i'm going to be doing i think i was 24 years old so i'm, I'm curious what the culture and climate both of of camden uh, and it's it's fire department was like in your early days as a firefighter. Can I go back real quick? Sure. I, I want to like kind of reiterate on this point because it it's like when did I know I wanted to, to follow in my father's footsteps? It, it's weird. It it kind of happened backwards. It's not like I didn't respect what he was doing or the job. I just was really largely ignorant to it. Right. So I'm a fireman six months. I catch an overtime shift. I go uptown to engine one. I'm working the nozzle there, and my father. We were opposites, right? So, okay. so, so his shift was my overtime shift. So, anytime he would work overtime, he'd be on my shift, and, and vice versa, right? right. So, so we get we catch a, a second alarm box in North Camden, and I, I shoot up there, and I distinctly remember we were on one of our old haunts. It's like the open cab in the back, and I, I stood up to, to get off the rig, and and just then I just happened to look forward and see ladder two's aerial was up to the roof, and my father and the company was climbing the ladder to the roof, and I like. You know what I mean? Like it immediately dawned on me like, wow, like this guy's been doing this for the last 25 or 30 years. Like it just clicked, man. Like it was a whole nother level of like, whoa, like respect about the fire service, about my father, about like like what these guys are doing. So, so yeah, it was like I had actually been on the job for six months before I realized I wanted to follow in my father's footsteps, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What a cool experience to yeah, I was have the opportunity not only to follow in your father's footsteps, but to have gotten to go to fires with your with your father. Mm -hmm. What was Camden like in those in your early years? It was busy. Obviously it's it's a socioeconomically challenged area and it's not very big. So for the amount of fires you're going to in a in a ten square mile area, it, it's just busy, you know, and, and at that point most companies were busy and, and you know, when I got hired we had eleven fully staffed companies, right? So so the fire department since 2011-ish has basically been attriting repeatedly. When you say when you say busy, you mean run volume, or you you mean work, both. or you mean both? Both. I, for a fire department that doesn't do medical runs, um, my engine was easily pushing 2,500 runs a year, 
and and a lot of it was fire duty. Like it wasn't it wasn't strange for me to go to work and and hear the outgoing shift say they had two or three fires or four fires even, and and then for me to go to two or three fires a shift. Like it, it was it was busy for fires, and it was a lot of repetition of you know what we do in Camden. It's a two and a half story wood frame, twins, single family homes, um, two and three story ordinary constructed row homes. Vacant, occupied, both? Both, both. Uh, predominantly vacant, but like what happened over over the course of my career is that it's it's funny how there's like less and less money for the fire department, but there's more and more money to like knock vacant buildings down, right? So so your work starts to kind of go away from that regard. But I think um, that fire department gets slighted a little bit in that like we do much more occupied fire duty work than than people think we do. I mean, is there like a, was there like a climate or a, a culture associated with the fire department in those years, or was it more like it kind of varied house to house, company to company? Back then, it was probably more organizational, and I think it kind of like over the years has, has become more house to house. Back then, it was certainly busier, right? So, so you're on the street a lot more, and, and I think the culture then was like go to a fire, come back, and, and kind of like get ready for the next one. There was certainly not a whole lot of drilling or training going on. Um, again, with the socioeconomically challenged issues, like this has been the story of my entire career, right? There's just no money for this. There's no money for that. Um, the culture is, I don't want to say cynical, but it, it over the years, since our fires have kind of like slowed now, it, it's more of like, I, I guess it's like low morale, low interest. You, you know, like the places, if you want it to be, it's kind of like a playground for firefighters, right? Like if you're really all in on your profession, if you're looking to hone your skills and be a firefighter, like there's plenty of opportunity to, to do your job, right? Like there's plenty of chance to apply your trade. Do, and, do you think though, to some extent, like my sense is that this, the city has been in a fiscal crisis for the duration of your 20 plus year career. I mean, after a while, I got to imagine that that wears on morale and that negatively impacts some of the, the things that you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, like you, you're busting your ass sometimes for stuff and then it's just, it's almost like a slap in the face for how you're treated. You know, I, I think obviously that the fire department enjoys a much better relationship with, with the civilian population than, than the police do uh, and always have. And I think that's not specific to our, our area, but, um, it's just tough sometimes if you feel like you're not supported or you're not being provided training or there's no real vested interest in your people. I feel like the organization suffers some, you know, and, and uh, it, it makes it harder to want to wanna go the extra mile. I mean, certainly we have our fair share of guys who are, who are all in all the time. But um, the environment is conducive to, to like being a little more hands off. So we, we've talked before about some of the drastic measures that your department has been forced to take as a result of the continued fiscal crisis um, that the candidate has navigated, just to kind of like put in context what some of those drastic measures have been just even over the course of your career. So for a while, it seemed like we were doing really good. I, I felt like my father who started in 1968, you know, and, and he watched a couple of riots happen and, and basically watched it decline for the better part of his entire career into what it was when I came on the job, I thought he's going to watch it go from, you know, A to Z, and then I'm going to watch it go from Z to A back, right? Like it's going to be this full circle thing over the course of both our careers, right? So so there's been an angemi there since 68, and now I'm like, maybe in 2009, it was like there was a lot of hope. I was like, man, this is, you know, 
something really good. But then what, what really kind of happened, and, and this would segue me into some other stuff academically, but in 2011, it was just so bad that the county wound up taking over the city's police force. And, you know, that's a whole other podcast in and of itself, obviously. But, like, I saw the impacts of that at the fire department, right? So in 2011, we laid off 60 guys and, and demoted a whole bunch of battalion chiefs and, and back down to captain and, and captains what? back down to private but laid off 60 out of a workforce of, of how many? Uh, so when I got on, I, I want to say there was probably around 220 altogether when I got hired, 11 companies. And then by the time the layoffs took place, we might have been at around 190. So so it was like a large thing. And, and civil service and, and the city, I'm not exactly sure how this went. It's been some time. And I wasn't directly impacted by it because I had enough time on the job. But they didn't understand that a demotion was basically uh, like a termination, so to speak, right? So so they thought they were just going to lay 60 people off and that was going to be that. But it was like much more complex, obviously, right? So now you have battalion chiefs moving back down to captain and captain moving back down to private. And some of these guys had been in grade for a decade. Wow. You know? Um, and, and this comes all on, the, on the, the housing market stuff and whatnot back in that time. And, and it, it there was a 20% reduction in pay. Um, and, and company, permanent company closure. So, so we had lost engine six there. One of our units had to start uh, cross-staffing two units. So our full-time rescue became a rescue and a ladder company. So those four gentlemen do both rigs worth of work. And, and it was just a, you know, a means to kind of get more with less, right? Like that's, that's one thing that we've been exceptionally good at over the years is just doing more with less. And, and it's, you know, I know it's a running joke in a lot of places like mine, but, um, the impact, I still feel like we, we deal with it like every, every so often, like this has been 10 years from from then, you know, and for the most part, everybody's been made whole. Coming to work, feeling that, you know, you don't have the full support of the administration or the senior leadership or recognizing you might have the best equipment available is one thing. Coming to work, knowing that somebody who just spent 10 years in rank mm-hmm. was, was demoted. Yeah. How, how could that not weigh on you? It was just incredibly hard um to see these people's lives like remarkably altered right so you're a fire officer for almost six seven years eight years and now you find yourself and and at the time we were busy man like we were that summer 2011 that summer we we had like a a half dozen extra alarm fires some some went to 11 12 13 alarms they it was just it was really bad and and you had guys who were just I don't know if disgruntled is the right word, but they were like life-altering circumstance, right? With paychecks, these guys have mortgages, they have car payments, and, and they have babies, young kids, um, and they're no longer employed. You, you know, like you take a civil servant job as a firefighter, you don't ever think like, hey, I'm I'm not going to be able to put my 25 or 30 years in, right? And then... Yeah, I feel like one of the benefits of taking those jobs is the stability that mm-hmm. comes with that. Right. And and so it's like public versus private sector. Like, these are sharp guys, you know, they could have gone and done whatever they want to do with their lives, but they wanted to serve and, and, and then to, to deal with that well into your career. And um, some of these guys had, had, they were off the job for the better part of a year, you know, and they had to come back in waves because then there were grants involved and, and stuff like that to, to get everybody back and uh, some restructuring. So there was like a, a wave that would bring back the initial and then some guys would move up and, and then like 
you know, so this is unprecedented territory for a lot of stuff. It was unprecedented for our union in, in terms of like helping guys, like how can we help them navigate this? And it's like, hey, we've never done this before. And then how do we re-promote was even an issue. Like it, it just got really, really complex. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of uh, turmoil and uncertainty for sure. I, I heard you share with a group of leaders rather recently that it's critical to recognize or that it's critical to, to understand how others see you because people don't always see you as you see yourself. How do you think that others, particularly leaders, would have characterized you during your early years and then came to find upon it? So my early years were, were anything but professional, right? Like I, I, I think for the most part, they would have been like, hey, this dude's going to get the job done. You know, you know this guy's going to be where he's got to be. I didn't have a reputation as um, a slacker per se, right? Like I was down to do the work and I, I did the work. I thought pretty good. I did it the best of my ability. Um, but I wasn't really being a professional. It was more of a thing of like, what can I get away with around here? You know, like, yeah, if I don't have to be clean shaven at roll call or I don't have to have my shirt tucked in, like I'm just going to push all these dumb envelopes, right? Like, and and work harder at being a professional than to actually just be one, you know? It's just kind of... Do you think that was the byproduct of your skateboarding yeah. mentality or mindset? or Absolutely. And because of that, I, I felt like a lot of the guys I had respect for at my job, who whose company I wanted to work in or, or who I respected as, as firefighters, um, their ability or, or their KSAs or whatever that that I wanted to work with, they they weren't giving me the time of day, right? Because because I wasn't looking at myself. I, I might have been good at my job, but but they still were going to maybe see me as a liability. You know what I'm saying? This, this isn't the guy we, we want in our company. So Yeah, which is, I guess, interesting to me. Having known you now for several years, when I when I think of the type of individual and leader that you are, I don't necessarily associate those those qualities with you. So, I, what what was the impetus for your reform as a firefighter and more broadly as a as a professional? So, I I think when I said like others don't perceive you as you you think they do, it was like a hard earned lesson, right? So, like I I had a transfer and to go to our rescue. Uh, I had been in a busy unit most of my career, seven years, you know, and, and eight years. I, I wanted to go to a rescue, and it was it was citywide at the time. Um, and again, like at that point, like only the officer and, and the chauffeur had portable radios, you know, like the nozzleman and the, and the supply didn't. So it was like for me to go to our rescue was like a license to freelance. It was like more fires. A license to freelance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like I was going to have my own radio and I was going to just be at every fire in the city no matter where it was. And I was just going to gain experience and go to fires and apply my trade more, you know. And that was your I mean, that was your motivation to go yeah. initially. Yeah. Wow. But obviously I didn't go, right? So I had a couple of, of, of less than favorable circumstances happen at fires or whatever. And, and, you know, again, with that whole how others see you. I, I had to take a close look at myself and I went and I spoke to some guys and I made a couple of apologies happen and um, and, and I just kind of like grew up, you know, like I grew up on the job. So I, I had a lot of lessons to learn and a, and a lot of like self-reflection. And I, Was I think, there a single event? Did it instigate it? This, this change so, so there was part a, or was it there a There was slower? a bunch. Yeah. Uh, per, like personally and professionally. So I, I touched on some of the professional ones, obviously, but then there was like some personal stuff, not to get too into it, but... Uh, a breakup where, where you thought that this was going to go in, into the next level and, and family. And, and then um, my grandmother had passed away and my mom had passed away like 
within a very close time period. And, um, you know, and I, I don't know how deep we're going to go into this with, with whatever, but like when, when you're on the edge of your bed with your Sig Sauer 229 40 caliber, you, you know, things are not good for you. Um, and then to think that like you just didn't do something because your father was going to have to come in here and clean it up. Like it, it's just, it's kind of far away from, from where I'm at. It's, it's interesting to bring it up, but um, professionally and personally, it, it like something had to give, right? So it was just like, I, I almost had to hit the reset button. I read a book. I think it was The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I believe that's how you say his name. But after that, I just, my perspective shifted. Like that coupled with, hey, if the county wants to come in here and undo our fire department, like they did with the police department, I need a job, right? Like this was some years after the fact, obviously, but like, so maybe there's two. So this was what reset me to go to the rescue and start like playing the part. Cause I realized like, if people are looking at you like this and you promote, who's going to take you seriously? Cause, cause I had plenty of bad examples, Jason, you know, like there's plenty of bad examples for, for me to choose from. And I was emulating some of the wrong people. Right. So to kind of realign that and, and kind of move in a different direction, it's interesting that like it, you lose friends over stuff like that, right? But I realized that I had to change how I was and what I was doing and how I was living, and I did that. And and I knew I had to do it as a private and and do it for a while if I was ever going to be respected or looked at, you know, differently as a company officer. And, and company officer was like really the only, the only objective or the only goal I had at my job, you know, like I knew I wanted to have my own company one day and I knew I wanted to teach. I was passionate about that and I wanted to get other guys better and, and make decisions and deal with uncertainty and complexity, right? Like this is what I wanted to do. So, so, it, so you were undergoing a, you know, a reform of sorts during the season of life. Were there any individuals in particular who were instrumental or influential in, on your reform? There was a couple and, and I think that's ongoing. Even to this day, I mean, I, I am always networking and meeting people and, and finding new friends and, and mentors. But um, one one gentleman in particular was the captain at the rescue when I wanted to go there. And, uh, you know, I'm seeing guys with less time on than me, junior guys to me that were getting transfers ahead of me. Um, one more thing that led to like, hey, this is, you know, something's not right here. So... Um, I went and I and I had made an apology for specific incidents, and uh, I don't know what happened right then, but like something clicked with this gentleman, and, and we we've been very close since. Not right away, but it opened up that door. Right, it, it almost reminds me of this story Russell has when he talks about the Marine who had failed all those times for his drug test, and it was on on Jim's decision to like like the, you got who you got. These are your guys, you know, yeah. and, and like this was the best Marine I had on deployment. He took, after. Him, he took him to war. Right, right. So, so I get a, a a battalion transfer, like six months before the job actually even recognized me as as being transferred. Like I had a locker and everything, and they finally were like, "All right, you know, like they got they acquiesce, right? Like we're gonna, but just we'll make it permanent." But uh, I wound up working with this gentleman quite a bit. As he he wound up retiring recently. His name's Deputy Chief Ed Glassman. We didn't have the relationship we had now then, but what happened was years later after the fact. Like I was saying, if if they were to you know, change the framework of my fire department from a city to a county model, then like, why would they want me, you know? And that was the beginning of academics, right? And Ed Glassman and I did it kind of together. 
Yeah. So, so our relationship really built closer and closer. Did you continue with skateboarding? Like during this season, of, were, you, were you still? Uh... So initially, yeah. For the first bunch of years on the fire department, I would save up all my accrued time and I would bang off for a month and, and I would go out and sublet one of the rooms that one of my old roommates would have in San Francisco and I would go out for a whole month and I would skateboard with a lot of my old professional friends and, and, and kind of try to fall back into that life like I was wetting my beak with it all over again, you know? Yeah. And this carried on for a good three to four years maybe all the way up until like about 2005, I think I got wrecked and seriously hurt and I thought like, Hey, like you, you can't keep doing this, you know. So, so once the reform was underway, you you were really no longer actively skateboarding. No, I, I mean I, I'll always consider myself a skateboarder. It, it obviously made me the person that's sitting across from you now. It, it it spawned all levels of creativity in me, and and for me, I'm I, I firmly believe that creativity solves complexity. So so I I will always hold on to those roots. I still am in touch with a lot of my friends from that time period, and and I feel like that stuff. All of that collected stuff and what I still look at skateboarding as like a thing for me. Like I'd still consider myself a skateboarder. You know, I still look at buildings on fire just like I would look at them on a skateboard. Like how can I use this to skateboard and have fun or do a trick on? I look at buildings that way. Like how can I first this door? Like how would I get to this part of the building? How would I put myself in position with a hand line or whatever it's going to be? I don't do it anymore just walking here to the studio, like I'm looking at things from the skateboarder's perspective, you know, like the terrain is out there for me to use still, even though I'll never really get down like that. Sure. You mentioned earlier your affinity for art, even just beyond skateboarding. What, what other artistic endeavors have you embraced or experimented with outside of skateboarding? I feel like at this point, I, I just stick to photography um, I, I had been making a ton of art most of my life with found objects, sculptures, um, doing some painting and drawing. It's hard, like, you know, to just always find free time, especially now. When I had free time, I would certainly just grab my cameras and hit the street and go out in the city and take photos. And all of that carried over from skateboarding, you know, like I'd have a point and shoot film camera or something like that and, and be making art with my friends and taking portraits of my friends. But then, you know, as I moved into the fire service, I still have that, right? Like that's still something that I'd love to do. And and for me, it was always like, how am I going to keep these things separate, right? Like I'm a fireman over here, like by day, and and you know, I'm a, you know, trying to be this artist at night or whatever. But I, I found that like kind of incorporating the two of them. I, I had a really great conversation with a pro skateboarder friend at Templeton, who, who like really was like, why would you want to separate the two like that? Like you're in a really great place to, to give a perspective that not a lot of people are ever going to, to get to see like that, right? You can explain it visually. So um, I feel like around the time when I stopped skateboarding, I probably stopped making tangible like object art and, and just started shifting my focus to photography alone. And, and I've just been doing that since. Um, and I, I mainly just do it with an iPhone. I, I mean, I've got plenty of film cameras at home. I'm never going to be the guy carrying around some huge rig um, with a gigantic lens. That's never my thing. I'm, I'm much more kind of like um, subtle and, and close. I think that you, you don't have to be an amazing photographer to make beautiful photos. Like, I think it's more about time and place than it is um, what kind of equipment you're using, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm just reflecting. You're, you're unique in that. I know I got a lot of guys who who have been to a considerable number of fires, right? And I know, you know, some guys who who spent many years taking in fires, 
and capturing them through the lens of a camera. And you're, I think you, I'm sitting there thinking like trying to rack my brain. I think you're the only guy I know who's actually spent a lot of time doing both and that you spent a lot of time going to fires and you've also spent a considerable amount of time taking in fires when you weren't necessarily operating, but, mm -hmm. but, but taking, uh, taking pictures. And I know that you've read, because we've talked about on several occasions, the, the leadership principles associated with. I know that, though having not been a Marine, you've read Warfighting, MCDP-1 Warfighting, and have kind sure. of implemented some of the philosophy mm -hmm. into your approach, into your leadership style and, and approach at work. And the doctrine explicitly states that combat is, is both a science and an art. I think it's fair to say firefighting is, is both a science and an art. And given that you're one of the only guys I know who's like one of the only firefighters or fire officers I know who's a bona fide artist in terms of what mainstream society would consider right. art present day, I'm curious what aspects or elements of firefighting or more broadly high-risk performance do, do you associate with art that you view as being more artistic than scientific? And of course, we live in a I should say we live in a time and place or operate in a time and place in the American Fire Service where so much of our practices and techniques and tactics are arguably supposed to be rooted in scientific evidence. What, what's it, what say you, the artist? It's, it's a lot about style. I think for me, you can't not have them both intertwined, right? Like it's, it's a mindset. It's the way you approach things. It doesn't always have to be some cut and dry, clear cut thing, you know, like a, there's just such uncertainty and we exist in this ambiguous world. Like, of course, you're going to have some art. Like, like for me, it's like, why would I try to tune that out? Like, I just embrace it and kind of like it helps me like on a skateboard, right? Like it's your, your style is like a big thing. Like you might not be the greatest skateboarder in the world, but like how you do what you do. I don't know that it would make you better, but but it's more appealing. If that if that makes sense, so so for me, the way you go about your business or, or your style of, of work and how you apply your trade is like how I would kind of combine the art and and the, and the science of firefighting, right? Like, I know the textbook stuff, but like you can always put your own personal little spin on some of the stuff that you do, right? And and obviously, the more repetition you have to kind of tweak and try those things is how you kind of dial in on something that might work for you specific to your, you know, your own terrain or whatever. Sure. You, you, you mentioned earlier that this notion of creativity, you know, you, you kind of highlighted when you come into the fire service, you get on the fire department, you're working in a busy company, going to a good amount of fires, that skateboarder persona that you brought with you, I, I, I guess the, the, the renegade, right? Kind of highlighted some of the, the problems associated with that, that persona. But I got to think, though, too, there was an upside, right? And that you have that creativity is probably one of your, your strong suits, right? Like when I think like as a, as a military-minded, very structured, probably linear problem solver, mm -hmm. right. um, you and I probably – I think it's fair to say we probably see the world as, as different as we do similar. What? How do you think you're – you so, or people like you are in an advantage? I, I, feel, I feel like – right, so like – I don't believe solving the problem in a nonlinear fashion is going to be okay, right? Like as long as we arrive at the same endpoint, um, and I don't mean like that it takes me longer or anything, but um, you, you know the fire service loves saying there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? So like I feel like my creativity um, and the way I'm looking at things, though nonlinear, it might actually expedite 
you know, a process or, or like you're just going to be looking at something completely differently to solve a problem than, than, you know, somebody who is a little bit more textbook, you know, um, implicit versus explicit. I, I feel like I do well how I apply my trade with my creativity. I don't know really how to explain that in, in so many words. But it, it also, my sense too, is that you, you work in a very unique department mm -hmm. in a very unique city. I mean, my senses, I, I could be wrong. You can certainly tell me if you, if you disagree, but I don't know if your, your personality, right. And your flair for creativity and your style would necessarily be viewed favorably in much of much of the American fire service. What it might not. So it almost is like, in some ways, like you're in a place that fits your, yes, your personality. Y yeah. And, and like everything happens for a reason. Right. So, so, Sure, the place is the way that it is, and, and I feel like I've adapted the best I'm going to adapt and, and make it work for me, apply what I do and how I do it to the place, and, and I feel good about it. Like I feel like how I do it works well, um, and hopefully some of the guys that I work with would, would agree. Um, maybe not upper management all the time. But to your credit, it also sounds like as we kind of reflect on your evolution, your personal growth, your professional mm -hmm. growth, it also sounds like there's a little bit more structure to, to your approach and your... For, for sure. Today. So, so I, I mean, like, I'm, I'm trying to structure it more. I'm trying to make it, drive it more, like, as far as, like, policy or procedure, um, reform, how, how can we adapt or adopt more of this stuff into a straightforward means, right? And, and the only way to do that, I, I think, is to just get smarter and, like kind of like apply yourself academically to get better at how we're doing this, right? Like we can all get better constantly. So if I'm using my head and, and it just doesn't even have to be anything to do with the fire service, but if I'm applying myself academically in any other fashion, it might have nothing to do with the fire service, like, but that's going to make me much better in the fire service, right? So, so yeah, I, I'm trying to be a little bit more straightforward with it. I want to unpack your academic pursuits here in a minute or two, but mm -hmm. on the topic of creativity, um, you, you told me a few years ago, you might even have sent me an email. I, I don't remember the particulars, but you, you told me that this cliche that we hear frequently in the fire service, this notion uh -huh. of thinking outside yeah. the box yeah. really, really irks you. It, it, was an, it was an email, I think. And I don't remember how long ago it was. It's been some time, but it was- Which is interesting because you, you, you know, you kind of, um, fashion yourself as someone who's free, sure. who's creative, and then you're telling me. I remember the first time we had the conversation it was, and then it was pretty spirited. You're telling me that, like, actually, you're like, yeah, bro, but this whole think outside the box thing like, really, really, it does irks me. Why? It does. Like, I, a lot irks me. I, um, I, I feel <laughs> like so. It was it was a quote by Scott Faith, and it really struck a chord with me. Like, I don't. I'm trying to remember what the actual platform it was on. But who's, it was, Scott, who's Scott Faith? Scott Faith is a veteran who served in several different special operations units over the course of his Army career. Uh, I believe this was um, a blog post on the Havoc Journal, I think, is, is the platform. Okay. It's been some years since I read it, but it just immediately, the minute I read this, I'm like, you know, I'm out teaching. We're, we're doing a conference here or there, and... and you know, there's all these like catchphrases and all these sayings in the fire service about how they're doing this or that. And it was, it was, you know, everybody just wants to think outside the box, but it's like, what does that look like? You know what I mean? Like, like, what do you mean by that? Like, give me an example, you know, and it's just like this weird thing they say. 
And to me, his his quote was, and I'm paraphrasing, was more or less like, the only way you can think outside of the box is by deliberately staying inside of the box for long periods of time, right? So The only way you can think outside the box is to have spent long periods of time. Long periods of time. Inside the box. Right. So, so, so how can you, quote unquote, think outside the box if you don't know what the inside of the box looks like or, or like how to operate effectively inside of the box? Right. And, and I feel like that can only come through experience and time, you know, and, and when you're out teaching and, and a firefighter with very little experience says something like, let's think outside the box. I, it just it kind of, you know, rubs me the wrong way because I, I feel like even now, 21 years into my career, I, I feel like I've gone to a decent amount of fires and, and I'm not looking to think outside the box constantly. I mean, like, obviously, there's going to be a, a point where, like, you need to, you know, to deviate from policy, right? But how do you know when and where to do that and, and how to do it effectively and safely um, without exposing yourself to, you know, a bad position or, or exposing the guys you're with to a bad position or having to make somebody come and get you, you know, because you thought outside the box and, and potentially put yourself or in a bad spot. probably equally significant, making, implementing a solution that's more difficult or complicated than it has to yeah, be. Yeah, like adding complexity, right? Like, yeah. I, I want to think outside of the box and it's just going to make everyone's life more complex, right? Like, so in a tactical context, I, I think I understand that thinking. The, what's ironic is I, as I sit here in the podcast studio with you today, look at you kind of reflecting on your journey and, and as good of friends as we've been, like I, I've learned some things about you today that I, I, I didn't know. They don't necessarily surprise me, but, but give me an even greater appreciation for your growth and your journey. But when I look at you and I think about your early years of your life, your early years in the fire service, um, I have to laugh because it's almost like you started outside the box and now this guy who's like going to Georgetown recently, like I, I think like you're inside the box now. Like Yeah, right. That in order for you to actually get into the <laughs> into it's a the story box. It's just done everything backwards. Yeah, almost like in a conventional or like corporate sense, but it's almost like you probably yeah, it's just it it's, it's uh, just ironic. So which leads to where I want to go next. You know, we, we, we kind of uh discussed the renegade season of your life, mm. the reformed season of your life. I don't necessarily mean in a traditional orthodox re religious context, yeah. but just as a, just as an individual, mm -hmm. um, as a leader, as a, as a professional, what, what follows next is, uh, I wouldn't say it's surprising, but not probably entirely pr predictable. Um, you, you decide to pursue a college degree, like a full fledged degree later, later in life. And uh, which it's, it's not lost to me just how challenging that is. And my father, um, you know, who, who I speak of frequently and, and, and hold in the highest regard, he, he didn't start, you know, similar to yourself, he didn't start pursuing a degree until he was in his early 30s, mm. at a time when he was, in addition to working all of his tours in the firehouse, he was banging nails uh, every day that he wasn't in the firehouse, uh, you know, to help put food on the table, support our family. Uh, in, all while coaching my, uh, you know, my my club and travel baseball teams, so it's it's certainly not lost on me just how challenging it is for adults who are living life like full stream, yeah, or full speed rather. Mm. Um, how difficult it is for for those sorts of individuals to uh, to tackle a, a bachelor's degree. So, what was the catalyst? Was it professional necessity? Like, if you don't get this degree, you're not going to get promoted. Was it out of curiosity was it 
What, what was it? I think it, it was maybe a little bit of all that. I, I probably necessity more than anything else. Like I said, like I thought had had the city fire department gone way of a, of another frame, um, and I had to you know, be looked at or scrutinized by people who would be bringing me from one fire department to the next or something like that. From urban to suburban that you or, might need a degree? Well, well, not from urban to suburban so much as like just from, from a city model to a county model. Okay. Right? Like, what do I bring to the table? Like, how, what do I have to offer? You, you know, like, because I'm not too far from who, from from what you would have considered the renegade season, right? So now I'm like... Uh, here's this guy who's burned through a sick time and he hasn't been a model employee and everything else. And like, yeah, like I'm in the middle of like trying to like earn people's respect while I'm still a private before I promote. So, so it was just like a challenge, you know, like I wanted to apply myself. And for whatever reason, at the time I had, I had started down this road with, with a, a, a community college or a county, a county level college. And, and it just didn't feel right. There were some weird things with it about, you know, the past credentials I had, you know, and, and of course, like from training and doing some stuff, I had, you know, a, a lot of what I would consider adult learning, albeit tactical. Um, so I, I, I wound up finding a place that, that felt more like home and, and that took that prior experience and, and accounted towards something. And, and I felt like I was just all in at the time. When you started your formal college education, did you anticipate that you might like it? Were you I, I, concerned I, that you might not? Was I, it... I was scared to death, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I'd been out of – I barely graduated high school, Jason. We had this conversation. Like, I was legitimately <laughs> on the work release program. Like, I, I was able to leave high school every day at noon, largely to skateboard. But, but because I had a job at the subway making hoagies, I, I was able to, to, you know, stay in school. Um, otherwise, I would have been a dropout early on in my senior year, and I would have tried to go and, and you know pursue skateboarding. So, having been removed from a formal academic setting for a long time, I was just scared to death. But but something about that was like felt really good. Scared that you might you might not succeed. Scared that you might be in over your head. Scared that you scared that I just wouldn't be good at it. You, you know, like I, I don't I didn't ever think that I wouldn't be good at it because I know. Typically in my life, if I apply myself to something like I'll, I'll excel. Yeah. Um, that like even though I'm a late bloomer at things, and it might take me a long time to to get good at something, because you know none of this comes easy. It's a lot of work, right? Um, but I felt like if I was committed, my prior life experience had dictated that I would be successful if I just kind of stuck with it, right? Like, this is just this mindset stuff, Joek. Um, just just be great be gritty right growth yeah. mindset yeah absolutely so just go for it and uh like i said I, I found a home at newman and the people there were great dr donnelly really really helped me um her her dad was a, a deputy chief from philadelphia fire department who wound up being one of the uh, great uh professor in the class really helped me a lot and uh and again i had a friend in, in the in the program in at glassman so i wasn't scared that i wasn't going to succeed i thought that i would but I was just scared that I would suck at it. I just didn't want to like be mediocre. You know, I, I didn't want to apply myself and, and kind of fail at, at being good, right? You know, playing to win and, and lose. Sure. What did you enjoy the most? The work, right? The I, work? I, yeah. Like writing papers, doing yeah. research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. I, I think in, in, in the last part of, of Newman getting an undergrad the professor offered like two tracks, basically, you know, he was like, you can do this this week or you can do this this week. He gave you the option. And every week I did both of them. 
and and I knew I was I already kind of had this inkling like I was I was going to go beyond this so I wanted so to to start preparing who, for that who knew that you were you had this academic overachiever in you I don't know no but I don't maybe my wife yeah 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 and she she's she, um had, she was a source of encouragement absolutely I I could have never done that without her my god like her, her being at home um young children you, you know I don't know how she survived it. I mean, it was one thing for me to do the work, but it, like that poor woman at home, she she she's really the reason why I got the degree, man. Yeah, I should mention the same thing about my mother because I, I feel like on the podcast or LUF endeavors, I, I frequently credit my father for mm-hmm. a lot. My my mom gets every bit as much credit, and she was at home, you know, helping things to run yeah. effectively and efficiently, and the, the support su- supporting at home, home right? all all the while, man. Yeah. yeah. And I would say dealing with my sister and I far, far more, right, which is probably every bit as challenging as, challenging as going to work mm. uh, or, or banging nails. So, I mean, clearly you enjoyed the undergraduate experience because you didn't, you didn't stop there. Soon after graduating from Newman, you enrolled in the graduate program at, at Georgetown. Was it so that you can, could continue to just do twice as much work was assigned <laughs> to every student or like what, what was the impetus for that? I was at that time, obviously, you know, like you kind of find the groove on, on stuff like that. And, and I didn't want to stop. Like I saw the end was coming and I was going to graduate and I started searching out what what could be next. Right. So so having said that, like I, I was this kind of directionless kid on a skateboard for years and, and I didn't really have any plans or, or didn't really hold myself in the highest regard. For me to be doing the things I was doing, I, I just maybe was impressing myself. I don't, I don't know what it was exactly, but I, I just wanted more of it. Like I wanted to prove to myself that I could continue to do these things, right? And and like beyond that, the, the other thing was I wanted it to like impact my work, right? So so these degrees are related to what I do for a living, and I think the thought the thought was more like how how can I match this like. 20 years of experience going to fires and being on the street w- with like an academic level of, of, of experience at the same time, right? Like I'm looking to be complete. Like I want to be a complete, as complete as possible on the fire ground, as effective as possible. So I was all in, right? And, and I started looking at programs and I asked Dr. Donnelly about this one and she showed me the, the Georgetown one, which was um, really something else. I, I mean, I've never been pushed so far out of my comfort zone. Uh, in, in the fact, like this program traveled internationally, you know, I found myself like having to book airfare to New Zealand, you know, and, and Paris to study terrorism. And, and you're like, wait, like I have to buy the ticket for Friday to leave on a Friday to get there on a Sunday. You know, like this is just so nothing I thought I would ever do. A little different than getting on your skateboard and riding into. Or like leave it, leaving your Philly. front door. And, and yeah, <laughs> you know, like it's just a, a whole other ballgame. I'd never traveled internationally. I never even had a passport, right? So like wow. like for me to be pushing myself in so many different ways, personally and professionally, um, it, it just was, I, I was just really, really interested in it and really enjoying it. And, and like I, I, I'm looking for it now still. Like I, there's other things I have lined up. I'm, I'm still applying to things actively and I'm looking to continue doing it. Um, I really do enjoy it. And I think, uh, you, you know, I tell some of the guys I work with, I'm like, look, it doesn't have to do anything w- with firefighting. You know, like it, go be a psychologist, you know, go study some of this, go be a neuroscience guy like Jim Mack, you know. And, and yeah, there's so much opportunity. It all falls under the category of, of broadening. Right. Right. I think that Jimmy Mack 
borrowed that term or, or concept from somebody like Gerald Mattis or Gerald John Kelly, you know, and we've talked about this before, but I think, I think in many ways the fire service in recent decades has finally come to embrace formal education. Mm. What's, what's tragic, however, is that it's embraced it or mandated it in such a narrow yeah. form Right. where if you're going to promote and you need a degree in many fire departments, probably an overwhelming majority, that degree has to be specific to fire science or emergency management, like within the institutional confines, mm. right? And yeah, you're kind of missing out on the whole opportunity, the whole purpose of education, which exists to equip us to all think more deeply, more right. critically, and to broaden our, our worldview. And, and isn't it strange? And all like, we're doing is just perpetuating right. more more groupthink. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna we're gonna pigeonhole you into this groupthink and then like God forbid you wanted to be like a sports psychologist and bring that back because you're coaching your team, right? Like it's one of the great tragedies. It, it is the military it, doesn't do it. Yeah. I, I don't know of another industry except with the exception of like medicine where it, it, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, there's so there's so much value to, to broadening and, and like bringing whatever it is that you're working on outside of the fire service and, and applying it to the fire service. It's really like um, it just isn't getting the attention that it needs. I, I feel like if more of us were doing it, we would we would collectively benefit from that so much. Yeah, it's a it's a bizarre practice um, for, for 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 sure. Along those lines, because I think that we're um, on the topic of. Uh, of, of reform. What's really interesting as your friend and as an, as an observer of your, your, your evolution professionally and you coming to embrace higher learning, almost like at the, at the, at the highest levels, like even going to Georgetown and pursuing a graduate degree was, was not enough to sa- uh, satisfy your, your intellectual appetite. You know, over the time I've known you, you've, you've, you've gone from having your principal interests, primary interests revolve around forceful entry and ventilation and truck company tactics to mm-hmm. in recent years em- embracing m- more elaborate topics whether it be leadership uh, human performance organizational behavior and as someone who has been a product of reform uh, or my sense is that you're someone who's interesting in bringing reform to the to the fire service right in order to make it better we spoke briefly about education and maybe the fact that we're kind of missing the point and the mm-hmm. opportunity. Are there any other aspects of organizational behavior or performance in, in the American Fire Service that you think are, are ripe for reform or lend themselves to re- reform? I think some of there's certainly things for sure. I don't know that a, like culturally you would need to reform, maybe just like offer different perspectives and, and show that there's like potentially better cultures to participate or, or grow in your organization. When you say better cultures or um, just um, like a, a today, for instance, I feel like like our, our our selection process could could use a hard look, and then um, the like an organizational culture. I, I feel like you said like we're missing the mark a little bit on on how we're teaching our people to think, right? So so I think that or or perhaps we're not adequately teaching them to right to think right I, I, I feel like there, there's a whole aspect and and you know leadership under fire is great with this but but this isn't like doctrine like for the fire service at large right so so for you to seek this out is one thing but like for it to be kind of um, 
something that you get like in probie school or firefighter one or something like that and and again i think we would both agree that maybe like initially it's not something to, to have but like after you've gone on for some time like you should circle back to some of this stuff i, I feel like the human performance stuff is just a, a critical aspect of of us understanding ourselves before we understand how to apply the trade right so so after you've spent some time in the box right like like now like if i can open a firefighter's mind up to like how how his physiological and, and mental and and like like how he's dealing with the experience that he's going to operate in like people want to say things like oh they can teach from experience or teach you my experience i, I don't believe that that works that way right because everybody needs to, to gain their own experience on their own and, and just because you were taught to force a door away doesn't mean that when you're under stress you're going to be able to even perform that way right i think we saw that today so if we're going to like change a culture or, or like an organization's perspective on on training their people i feel like there's a lot of opportunity to like to kind of spread that you know to to get an organization more motivated to show their people how their body's reacting to what it is that they're dealing with, right? What kind of stress are you under? How are you going to be able to adapt to that? Or what can you do to, to bring yourself back, right? We talked about the curve all day and, and how do we do those things? And, and I think a lot of that is kind of cultural, like an organization's perspective on that, you know, whether they buy into it or, or kind of like disregard it, right? Um, I think that's at least one area how we're how we're training our people to think and look at, at uncertainty and complexity and then how we're selecting our people and bringing them into our job i think certainly could use a, a good hard look at at change yeah and probably along those lines how we select who's fit to lead i mean i think you know, and look, there's so much good in the in the fire service, right? Like how yeah, how we talk about how, that all the time. How blessed, how blessed are how blessed are we, right? Like, yeah. uh, this, I'm doing exactly what I've wanted to do since I was two. You yeah. a little bit, you you a little bit later, but we're both here. Absolutely, and, and we're doing so, what I want to do. Yeah, we're so blessed. But um, could we do a better job of so selecting the right sorts of of individuals? Sure. Mm -hmm. The other thing, could we do probably a better job of screening, assessing, mm -hmm. and identifying? The, the right sort of of leaders right um, I, I would agree with that I, I feel like our, our leaders are pivotal especially in, in the line officer position on on bringing up you know the junior guys and and I said this at my job like we didn't hire for 11 years um, so so there was a lot of complacency with with some training and and some passing on of skills right so now that we have new people there's a terrific opportunity to to steer them in the right direction right so like I, I learned all these extremely bad habits and like these like bad cultural habitual things to do on the job and and to know better now and to have kind of gotten past that and found a better way to be we can start changing that with newer people as they come in and like getting them more aware of themselves and what they're capable of and and pushing them professionally you know like I, I feel like the fire service doesn't really professionally develop their people enough you're talking about outside the scope of tactics and techniques yes yeah. yes you know and and then um beyond that I, I would say like there's a lot of value in doing some of these things as you go throughout your career because you know everybody says like oh i 
I'm out of here in 25 years. I'm going to retire in 30 years. But then it's like, what are you going to do? And, and everyone's like, oh, I'm going to sit on the beach and do absolutely nothing. And like, you know, after 25 or 30 years in the fire department, like, yeah, you, you, you might have earned that. But I feel like I've, as I creep closer to that, I start to understand that a lot of these guys are, are lost after they separate, you know, and, and a lot of a lot of them are they have these plans of doing nothing. Um, but but I think it's because, like, we've prepared them poorly to separate and prepared them to, you know, you're not going to do nothing well. Right. Like, yeah. you need structure and discipline in your life. And, and I feel like if we are, are professionally developing our people as they move through their career, they'll be able to, to continue doing maybe not what they retired from, but but maybe take on a whole other career. You know, my father has been out 20 years, you know, he that's a whole other a whole other lifetime of, of whatever it could have been teaching public safety. I, I mean, there's plenty to do once you're retired. And uh, we're not really bringing our people up to think that way, because they can contribute to society, they could contribute to the organization that they just separated from, you know, and they can bring stuff back and give it back to, to the next generation of people. And that's really important for us, right? I don't know that we do a good job of handing off the organization to the next group beyond us. Yeah, and I know, I mean, Jimmy Mack obviously is a little bit further along in his his journey. And I think that transition is probably more imminent for him than it mm -hmm. is for you and certainly than it is for me. I know he talks about this. He's passionate about this theme, mm -hmm. about maybe doing a better job of helping people to prepare for that that transition, particularly knowing that when you do a job that you love to the extent that we do for, for so many decades, right. it's... It's, it's tough to get off the roller coaster, as, mm -hmm. as Danny Murphy says. But I also think it goes back to this theme of, of, of broadening, right? If, right. If, if our entire professional endeavor revolves around fire, serve, uh, fire science and fire and emergency management, and we've created these specialists and technocrats, yeah. and you can't ride a fire engine anymore, you're, I mean, you're, you're of somewhat limited, limited right. value. You can so, only so have so many lost. planners, right? Mm -hmm. but, but like had you been a little more broad and found that you – had a, a thing for psychology or like you, you wanted to do sports nutrition or something else, you know, as, as you were moving through your career and how that would be able to be relatable to what you were currently doing and then maybe what you're going to be doing after you're done, you know, that would make your separation maybe a little easier, right? Yeah, I, I think that this has the makings of being a uh, wonderful dissertation for you, my, my, my friend, when you, when you finally start your... Uh, We'll, we'll see. Your PhD. It could be part of it. Your, your PhD program. So as we start to wrap up, first, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here. And I, and I, you know, many of our listeners are, are voracious readers. Three books that have nothing to do with firefighting or tactical leadership, but yet perhaps everything to do with making us right. better. Hmm. So that's going to whittle some out. Range by David Epstein. Okay. Terrific. And, and I, for me personally, that was a really good one um, because it's like it gives you hope or something, right? Um, then The Hour Between Dog and Wolf by uh, John Coates. Okay. And Peak. I'm going to say uh, as my third choice would be Peak by Erickson. Anders Erickson. Yeah. I think um, – I mean we could do this all day. I, I mean I've just been reading so much and finding so much – in books that have nothing to do with firefighting that are, you know, completely about firefighting. But yet everything. Everything to do yeah. with it. And and I people ask me all the time, like, oh, what, what fire books should I read? And I'm like, man, like, don't read any of them. Like, just <laughs> here's a whole, you know, th th like these books are nothing to do with it, but everything to do with it at the same time. Um, I love that. 
Um, so those three would be would be probably my top three right now. But that would obviously, if you talk to me in another six months, I'd probably have three yeah. three different ones. And I'm I, higher I, on I know it. you crush audio books. So between now, oh, yeah. and the, you know, when you leave Midtown here in a few hours, yeah, I was just and drive home. You're probably gonna have Stephen another Hawking will be on the radio later. Yeah, right, listen so, about black holes. So I, I'd like to finish our conversation today around uh, an aspect of our life that I think is uh, incredibly important to both of us and has much less to do with firefighting or literature, certainly probably skateboarding, but that's uh, our, our home lives. And we're, we're both blessed and we're both fathers. You know, it's, it's funny when I look back and, and think about the season of our lives when we became friends at a fire conference, you know, several, several years ago, we were it's both 10 years, man. <laughs> single guys, not married. Like mm -hmm. probably the last thing on our mind was, was offspring. And here we are today, blessed to be raising daughters. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like what, you know, how, how has that impacted you? Not just professionally, but, but personally. But professionally, it just, it, it kind of slowed me down a little bit. Right. So th this would, it's funny to touch on the safety thing. Like I, I feel like the more effective I am, the safer I become. This isn't about safety, but like the first fire you go to after there's a baby at your house that that's six days old, a week old, a month old, you're moving up the steps, you're making your move, and it's like like wait a minute, right? Like this is no longer about me, you know. So so um, I think it, it slowed me down. I mean, it, I'm not going to say that like some younger guy is going to get a step on me or anything. I mean, it's not slowing me down like that per se, but but like the way I think about what position I'm in or where I'm headed, it put me on a much more macro level with, with how we're going about our business professionally, right? In a sense that you're you're more deliberate? I would say more deliberate, yes. Um, just, just much more focused. Um, a, a lot of the educational stuff is directly spawned off of that, and that's probably more towards it to personal aspect of it but obviously the two are like so closely connected anymore like it's it's almost like it's, the line is so blurred between it it's made me better it's made me better so much as i'm sure you echo like everything i'm doing now has a drive behind it like like i i have these a six and a seven year old motor at home like just pushing me and pushing me you know and and then everything is basically about them at this point right um, the, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, a glassman, he told me, it was like, at, at some point, this becomes not about you, you know, and, and, and I, I 100% understand what he means by that now, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we talk, we frequently encourage each other to become the best version of ourselves because Absolutely. we kind of recognize there's, a, there's an imperative for all of us to be consistent path to become the best version of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And in our line of work, that's under like less than ideal Absolutely. <laughs> conditions, right? But I mean, like I... You know, I know that we were both firmly committed to this leadership under fire philosophy now for for several years, and I, you know, I I thought I knew what love was, hmm. right, or what the imperative of being the best version of yourself was until I held my daughter for the first yeah. time. Yeah, and it's uh, it's remarkable. There's 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 nothing like it, man. Greatest thing in the world, best best uh, best thing that ever happened to me, all because of my wife. You know, like um, so so that's my them. Right, like that's yeah, that's exactly my them. So, which is one final question I gotta ask: sure. are, are you gonna let your daughters skateboard? We're already working on it. <laughs> uh, this past Christmas, Santa brought him a couple of skateboards that I might have had some help with him getting. Um, so, yeah, uh, they have skateboards, and this spring we'll be out and pushing around. 
It'll be a little different for them. I mean, they're wearing these cute helmets with cat ears on them and, and unicorn spikes and whatnot. You know, it's <laughs> That's something great. I don't know. If my, daughter, I ever... my daughter's still in the uh, the scooter phase. Yeah. And when she's ready for skateboarding, um, call I, me. I up. know who to call. And the last question, and I don't even need an answer, but I don't even. Are, are you gonna? I'm sure you've thought about this, and it's several years down the road. But the question is, are you gonna let your daughters? date skateboarders <laughs> nope <laughs> absolutely not they won't date skateboarders or farm <laughs> well, well Gabe look man I uh, you know I, I value our, our friendship uh, I've certainly benefited from your insight your your perspective having you as a sounding board over the course of the past several years um, I I know that your your journey your your, your path certainly un, 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 unconventional um, but is really re- remarkable in its own way, you know. Thank you, Jason. And, and I appreciate that. To, to observe you in recent years, man, I, you know, is uh, it's it's been special. And one of the things that I I probably remiss if I didn't mention when when we were speaking about mentors earlier, you'd be in the top of my list, man. I, I can't say that um, with, with any more of a full heart. Like, there's not a lot of guys that that. that are on this level of thought, man, and, and it's really, you're, you're really pushing the envelope in the fire service, and I think in the right direction, um, and uh, I'm just happy to be a part of it. Well, I, I thank you, and, and I'm honored and humbled because that means a lot coming from you. So, Gabe, thank, thanks for taking time out of your uh, your busy schedule to make the trek to Manhattan, man. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank, thank you so you. much for having me. All right. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.